you may be seated. To do so, I invite you to join me now in, in taking your copy of God's Word. Scripture tells us that God's Word is a the great pearl of wisdom. It's a great pearl of wisdom that's worth the, the search and effort. So let's take our, our pearls of wisdom and we turn together to our passage for this morning and, and so our, our morning and, and part of our spiritual diet for the week and that is Acts 5 verses 12 through 16. So Acts 5 12-16. Satan has made his way into the early church. He has done so through Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife who were active in the early church. Active, and they had gone to the apostles and had made a deal with them that they would sell some property and they would give all the proceeds to the church so the church could use that money to help those in need. But as you remember, they reneged on that. They kept back some for themselves. And Peter said to them, Why have you. See, Peter put his, his finger on it by saying, It's the work of Satan. So Satan has made his way into the church through this couple who were more Christ haunted than Christ focused. As we see, Satan can and will and does work through those who are merely Christ-haunted and not Christ-focused. That there's judgment for just playing with the things of Christ instead of being committed to Christ. There's judgment for being Christ-haunted, but there's always blessings for being Christ-focused. And so that brings us to our passage this morning here in uh, the second part of Acts 5. So let's take these moments to pray together for the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Lord, we do pray for that. We pray for your blessings. That we will come now as those who love Jesus because we know he first loved us. Who follow Jesus because we know him as our great shepherd. Who long to hear this word because we know this is your word and it is your word that always points us to Jesus. But we need the Holy Spirit for that. So we pray for the Holy Spirit to be here with us, amongst us, in us, to guide us in this time. May the unction of the Spirit be upon me, so that I will merely be your messenger. And may your Spirit be here with your people in such a way that they will only hear and receive your truth. And we pray this together now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 5 beginning in verse 12, and we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together at Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with the unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. What makes a great author great? 
What, what is it that makes a great storyteller great at telling stories? We find that how a story is told is often just as important as to what the story is about. The way a story is told can also be just as important, if not more important, to what the actual subject material is. That the, the flow and the current of a story, either written or told, can really be just as important as the words that are used to convey the meaning of that story. So when we think of, when we think of, 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 of great authors, of great storytellers, what we find is they may have a good story, but they're able to make it great in how they tell the story. They can have a great idea for a story, but it's how they tell and convey the story that makes all the difference. I would imagine we've all heard someone who tries to tell a story and and bless their heart, they just can't do it. And it may be a great story. They just are not very good at telling it. So it is up where you don't really understand what they're trying to tell you. How a story is told is often just as important to what the story as what the story what story is being told. And the same is true for the Bible. I was reading recently in John Piper's introduction to his book on Providence. He says this. People who love the Bible and believe that it is God's word want to know more what the Bible teaches, not just what it says. They want to know the reality being presented, not just the words that were written. And that's true, isn't it? For those of us who, who love the Bible and believe it, I mean, God's word, we, we want to know what it teaches. We want to know the reality being presented. Because the Bible is more than just a collection of words. It's a story. It's the greatest story ever told because it's the story of the triumph God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who put together this plan of salvation for His people and then accomplished that salvation and then applied that salvation. It's the greatest story ever told because it's the story of a God who so loves us that He would save us from our sins, save us even while we were His greatest enemies. It's a great story, but it's also a story that's told Well, it is generally understood in the world of literature, one of the greatest openings of all literature of all time. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from that point, we are captured. Who is this God? And tell me more about this creation and, and so we, we have this great story that, that's so wonderfully told from Genesis to, to Revelation. It's a captivating story because at the center of it, it's a story that's all about Jesus. This God who created the heavens and the earth. It, it, it's a triumph God. And we're told in Colossians that it was through Jesus and for Jesus that all things were created. From Genesis to Revelation, it's this wonderful story that's all about Jesus And it's a story that's well told. And even when we come down to the micro level of the individual books, we see that they are wonderfully crafted and told. We see how the flow of the story is important. It's a divine-led and inspired flow and current 
We find in each book that helps to convey the story of the gospel, the story of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so loving you that the Father sent the Son. And the Son came. And the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came so we can know and have this salvation. It's the greatest story ever told. And it's a great story ever told, and it has been told well. Think about this in the micro, micro. We're going to come down to the micro of Acts, and we're going to come down to the micro of where we are in Acts. Luke is relating a story originally to Theophilus, and he just told Theophilus, I'm going to tell you about the birth of the early church. And Satan has now come into the church. He's coming to it through some members of the church of Ananias and Sapphira. And, and, and it has echoes of the story of Satan entering to the garden and, and tempting uh, God's people to doubt the, the goodness and the truthfulness of God. He did that with Adam and Eve, and now he's doing it again with Ananias and Sapphira. So in, in this literature, in this story, the villain has now made his appearance. And when a villain makes his appearance, that can be discouraging. So we've reached this discouraging Part of the story. Here's the church. Things have been going well in the church. There's been some trouble outside, but within the church, everything has gone well until now. Satan's come along and he's got his fingers, his, his tentacles into the church. But do you, have you noticed how Luke is telling his story? Satan has entered into his church. He says, now. Many signs and wonders were being done. We've gone from, from the bad, the evil, the darkness to, to something that's encouraging and uplifting. And so what we find here in, in, in the flow and, and current of the story that Luke, divinely inspired and led, is telling is that he's reminding us that God is always at work. Even when Satan's there, God is always at work and God is always victorious. Satan does not win. He introduced, Luke tells us about Satan coming into the church, but then he reminds us that wonderful things are being done because even when Satan is at work, he is a defeated enemy. Satan will never win because God is victorious. God is always victorious. That's the book of Revelation. We said before, uh, we've, we've told the story before, that there was a, a pastor who was asked, how would you summarize the book of Revelation? He said, God wins. God is always victorious, and the church is his bride, and therefore as his bride, we will always be victorious. Satan will wage battles, and sometimes those battles will inflict damage on the church, as we have seen in other denominations, maybe even by our own personal testimony. But Satan has lost the war. Because when Jesus was crucified on the cross, and with his dying breath declared, it is finished. That was a declaration of victory. Victory for his people. Victory for salvation. Victory for the church. And so, in the overall flow of scripture, in the micro flow of scripture in Acts, in the micro, micro flow we find here, we are being reminded that Satan is defeated and there is no changing that story. He has come in through Ananias and Sapphira, but the church is marching on. 
And God is still at work in his church. And God is still using his church to further his kingdom. And that is the flow of our story. And Luke is, is telling the story, this flow of the story, the story of victory through the impact of the church and the community. Did you pick up on that as we read it? The church was doing well. But now we begin to see the impact of the church and the community. So as we think about this, I want us to take a moment and first think through this. What is the impact of our church in this community? How is Bethel ARP thought of in Winsboro and Fairfield County? What is it you believe people think of when they think of Bethel ARP? Are we making an impact in the community that God has placed us? Is our presence in Winsboro doing any good for the kingdom of God? What sort of impact do you think we are having? We've been here for 200 years. What kind of impact do you think we've had? What kind of impact do you think we're having now? I don't want you to put that in the back of your brain. I want you to put it somewhere in the middle. I want you to think about that as, as we think through the impact of the early church in their community. Look again at me at verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So Luke makes this transition. Ananias and Sapphira have, have been used by Satan to get into the church. Judgment has come upon them. But now he makes a transition. He says, now. Here's what Satan has done. Here are the consequences. Here's the judgment. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Think back with me uh, a few days before this. A few passages back. Peter and John have gone to the temple. They see a beggar. The beggar's asking for money. You remember what they tell the beggar? We don't have any money. We got something better. We have Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Religious leaders hear about it. The man's healed. Religious leaders hear about it. And they're arrested. And they're told they can no longer share the gospel. You can no longer go out and teach others about the gospel. And they release them. Peter and John go back to the church, their friends, and they tell them about it. Do you remember how the church responded to this? To the arrest, to the story, to the threats? To, do you remember how they responded? They prayed. And they specifically prayed for more gospel boldness in their lives and ministry. They didn't pray that persecution would be taken away. They didn't pray that the bad, the bad men would now be good. They simply prayed that they would have gospel boldness in their lives, in their ministry, and that they would have more of this boldness. And we see in this passage that God is still honoring that prayer for gospel boldness. He has blessed the church for them to continue to be bold in their love for Jesus and to be bold in, in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. They're bold in their love of Scripture and teaching Scripture. They're, they're bold in, in, in the precepts of God's Word and living by them. They are bold for Jesus. That God has blessed them with their gospel, with this gospel boldness, 
and their faith and their lives in this ministry. And this boldness is now having an effect on the community around them. It's, it's having an effect. People are coming to them, right? But, but look again at verse 13. This, because it seems like Luke is saying something here that, that seems like a contradiction. None of the rest dare join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Right? So there are people who are staying away. But what's he say here? And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So which is it? Is Luke talking on both sides of his mouth here that as people looked at the gospel boldness of the church that they stayed away, yet they, they, they also came, right? None of the rest there joined them, but more than ever, believers were, were added to the, to the multitude or added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Which is it? Has the gospel boldness repelled or has it drawn in? The answer is Yes. Because Luke is talking about two different groups of people. There are people who are repelled by the gospel. Those who who did not dare to join them. They're outside the church. Now it said that they held them in some high esteem. Maybe they appreciate their their nice manners. They were good. The Christians in church were were nice people. They tipped well. They held the door open for older ladies. Uh, they, they were good people. Maybe they held them high esteem for that. Maybe they held them high esteem because they were out in the community and they were, they were helping the sick and they were helping the poor. They were helping those in need, right? There was something there that they, they respected them, but they were repelled by the gospel. They were impressed by what the church was doing, but they weren't prepared to commit to Jesus in this church. They, they saw the gospel boldness of the Christians. But they weren't prepared to surrender to Jesus' heart-searching holiness. So they kept a respectful distance from the church. Their gospel boldness repelled people. It kept them away. Who wants to think about this for a moment? Because in our, in our, in our present church world, what the main, so much the main emphasis is on, so many books are on, seminars are on, uh, conferences are on, is... How do you get more and more people in the church? If you do a survey of, say, 100 pastors, 98% of them are going to tell you one of their main concerns is how do I get more people in the church? What do we need to do to make ourselves more attractive? And, we, and we've joked along the way about that. You know, what do we do at Bethel? Do we you know, rip out all the pews and we put in comfortable seating? We rip out the organ and put in a band and we you know, light and smokes and, and, and mirrors, right? What, what do we do? What, how do we get more people in the church? And it's interesting. Here is Luke telling us a story about the growth of the early church. And he talks about growth through people staying away. He talks about people staying away from the church because of the gospel boldness of the early church. These Christians weren't being jerks. They weren't going out beating up people with their Bibles. They were held in high esteem. They they were faithfully loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They were faithfully loving their neighbors as themselves. They were boldly committed to Christ and boldly committed to His church. And, And their faith was respected. But there were people who didn't want to commit to such a faith. That the gospel will repel people. 
And I think that's interesting for us to think through as we live in this sort of day age of this idea of, of what do we do to get more people in? Maybe it's time for the modern day church to read the Bible. And instead of, of, of fretting and, and wondering what programs do we do? What, how, what changes do we what, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do to get more people in the door? Maybe the focus should be on faithfully loving God. Loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength so they can love their neighbors as themselves. To be committed to Christ and the worship of Christ. And to go out and to serve your community. And we see how God works through that. A church planter once told me that when he planted his first church, every day he would pray that God would send people to the church. That's the prayer of every church planter. God, please send people to the church. He said God heard his prayer. God answered that prayer. And he did send people to the church. But the church planter began to notice that the people who were coming were troublesome. They didn't want to be committed all the way to the church. They had their ideas that they wanted implemented. They tend to cause more heartache and headache than anything else. So after a couple of years, church planters said, I changed my prayer. And I started praying that God would send his people to the church. That God would send who he wanted to this church plant. So God answered that prayer began to send people to a church who were committed, who want to be more part of the solution than a problem, who want to boldly live out their faith in Jesus instead of trying to implement their personality and opinion upon the church. Those are two different prayers, aren't they? It's one thing for us to pray, God, just send somebody. <laughs> send people to church. It's another thing to pray, Lord, send who you want to this church. Part of my preparation every week for the Lord's Day is I come up here on Saturday evenings. If you come by here between about 5 and 6, you'll, you'll usually see my truck out in the parking lot. And I come up here to do several things. I, I work through my sermon, make sure you know it's, it's, it's all together. And then I walk around the sanctuary. I begin here, and I make circles around the sanctuary and I pray. And I pray for everything that's on the schedule the next day. Session meeting, uh, deacons meeting, women's ministry meeting, uh, circle meetings, uh, Sunday school, worship, whatever is on the docket next day, I, I, I pray for that. And I usually end up here back in the pulpit. And because y'all are so faithful to never, ever, ever move from your pews, I can stand here and look at each pew and pray for you individually. And I will tell you what I pray. I pray first for conviction. That the Lord would convict you of the necessity of being at worship the next day. I pray for his preparation. That between that time of, that's usually about 6.30 or so, uh, that the Lord would begin to prepare you for the worship of him the next day. The last part of my prayer, Saturday evenings and I pray on Saturday mornings, is what that church planter taught me. 
I pray that God would send his people to Bethel. That God would send who he wanted to be here to worship on that Lord's Day. So that we would continue to be a church that's bold in the gospel. To be bold in how we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. To be bold in how we love our neighbors as ourselves. That we would be so bold for the gospel that we would repel those who need to be repelled. That we would repel those who are wolves in sheep clothing. That we would repel those who just want to come in to be troublesome. That they would have a healthy respect for us. Because we are Christ-focused and not merely Christ-haunted. But we will repel who we need to repel, but also that we would draw in. Because we see here, when the early church lived this way, when they lived in gospel boldness, not only did people were repelled, but it says the true sheep, the true sheep came in in flocks and droves. Look at what he says in verse 14. And more than ever, right? so more than a thousand saved at Pentecost, more than all those who have been saved over time. Luke says, more than ever, because of this gospel boldness, believers were added to the Lord, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The idea here is that the dam has burst. The dam has, has burst, and there are multitudes, almost countless numbers of men and women who are coming to the church, who are believing in Jesus, who are living for Jesus, who are being boldly, uh, who, are, who are having a boldly, faithfully uh, committed Christian faith. Why? Because they saw a church filled with Christians who were bold. Bold in loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Bold in loving their neighbors as themselves. And they came and they were saved and they became a part of it. In God's divine economy, the gospel will repel people. And Paul talks about it in length in his letters. It will be, it will, it will, it will be, uh, it will be this, this odious stitch to them. It will be foolishness to them. It will repel people, but it will also draw in. Gospel boldness will keep away those who don't want to be committed all the way to the Lord who find they have other things they'd rather do on a Sunday. But gospel boldness will also draw in the true sheep. When we live boldly for the gospel, we will be a beacon in the dark night to those who want to know Jesus more and better and deeper, who are tired of the lies and the mysteries out there, who just want to drink deeply from the gospel streams of God's word. We will repel and we will draw. And listen to the blessings of this drawing. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unkindling spirits, and they were all healed. This sounds almost like a summary of Jesus' ministry, doesn't it? We think through the Gospels. We think through all the times that Jesus healed the lame and the sick, even when they would touch his garments. 
And people would come from miles around to be near Jesus and to seek healing from him. They would tear holes in the ceiling to, to lower their friends in. That was the gospel ministry at work in Jesus. And we're told here that gospel ministry is still at work. That through the, 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 these bold Christians who didn't care about the world around them or what the world thought of them, they just cared about Jesus and loving Jesus and following Him. Through the, the boldness of them, that ministry is still at work. But the focus here isn't on, on, on that, the miraculous healing. The focus here is on faith. That's at the core of this ministry. These people had to have faith. And what were they having faith in? That these gospel bold Christians could and would heal them. That the Holy, the Holy Spirit was so powerfully manifested in and around these Christians, and Peter in particular, that even when they came, it not only had to come near him, that they would experience the healing of the Holy Spirit. But all of that was just meant to be a signpost to Jesus. We, we, we think of the story of the, of, of the beggar. And, 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 and Peter and John didn't just heal him in a way. They told him about Jesus. And we know that's happening here. Everything that's happening here is miraculous. It's just a signpost to Jesus. And so it says, word spread throughout Jerusalem. People were coming from outside Jerusalem to come and be a part of this. What was the word? The word was this. There's a group of Jesus believers and followers up in Jerusalem. And they are bold in faith. They are bold in practice. And Jesus is still doing great, great things through them. Let's go to them. It all pointed to Jesus. This wasn't just about a healing of the body. It was a healing of the body to point to Jesus who would give the greater healing. And that's the flow of this story. Even though Satan has got his tentacles in the church, He's not going to win. Because Jesus is victorious. And as long as his people are bold for him, the church will continue to march on. And that's meant to give us hope. As individual Christians, as, as, as members here at Bethel, as, as being here at Bethel, our hope will never fail because Jesus never fails. The same Jesus who uttered with his last breath that it is finished is the same Jesus who is resurrected and ascended and now sits at the right hand of the Father where he rules over his church. This is the same Jesus who has entrusted the faith to us. This is the same Jesus who has birthed his church. This is the same Jesus, Jesus whose kingdom is growing and that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Luke is telling us in Florida's story, there's always hope because there's always Jesus. Even when Satan's at work, Jesus is greater. Jesus is more. Jesus is better. Jesus is victorious. Because it's easy to look at the world around us and give up hope. It's easy for us to look at our own families and start to lose hope. It can be very easy to be very hopeless in our day and age. Because everywhere, everywhere we look, it looks that all seem to be going to hell in a handbasket, doesn't it? So what do we do? We do as the early church. We continue to pray for boldness. We continue to live in boldness. We keep looking to Jesus. We keep loving Jesus. We keep living for Jesus. Because he never takes his eyes off of us. He never stops loving us. He never stops guiding us.
We remain committed to him and to his way. And we live out of faith that will repel those who need to be repelled, but will draw in those who need to be, who need to be drawn in. Because it's a faith that will change the world around us person by person. End with this story. John Wesley was preaching in London one night. The service was done. He's going home on his, her- on a, on a, on his horse. Goes by an alleyway and a robber jumps out in front of him grabs the saddle and he says, Halt, give me your money or I will take your life. Wesley had a few coins and he handed them to the thief. And he said to the thief, Go check my saddlebags and see if you want anything out of there. The man went through and found only books in the Bible. So he's disappointed. Only took a few coins. But as he was leaving, Wesley says, Stop. Sir, I have something more to give to you. My friend, you may live to regret this sort of life. If you ever do, I beseech you to remember this. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. The man sneered at him and walked away. Years later, John Wesley is in London. He's preaching somewhere. After service, somebody comes to him and says, Somebody wants to talk to you. He turns around, this man walks up, takes Wesley by the hand, and he said, To you I owe it all. It was the same man who had robbed him. Wesley immediately recognized him and he said, no, my dear friend, not to me, but to the precious precious blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. Let us keep looking to Jesus, loving Jesus, living for Jesus, and to remain committed to to him and to his way. That faith will repel, that faith will draw in, and it's a faith that will change the world around us one person at a time. And isn't that what we want the flow and current of our Christian story to be? Let's pray together.